Hi, I'm Rebecca Ballinger. I am on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's an easy listening station. Right now. Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The one them on the visceral change podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to season four this time of the chopping block. First and foremost, thank you all to my consistent listeners and viewers for giving us all of the attention we need to make it to season four. We began the chopping block back in 2018 for season one. And although you can find those on YouTube, uh, you know, I'm not mad if you don't at the same time, I'm hoping to bring some of those guests back on to do them some more justice. Uh, but since the pandemic hit and thereafter, we've really been able to, to, to make some movements. And I think people have been yearning for discussions around DEI. So I want to take a quick second at the top to thank my listeners, my viewers for helping us out. Um, in that visceral change is here based in Tucson, Arizona, and that is where the chopping block is also operating out of. And since living in Tucson, I've had the pleasure to meet some fantastic people, one of whom is my good dear friend, Rebecca Ballinger. So what better way to kick off season four of the chopping block than to do so with Rebecca herself? Rebecca, nice to see you. How are you today? I'm good, Sherard. It's good to see you too. How are you? I'm doing all right. Can't complain. You know, uh, I guess I could complain. I had a little bit of an injury, but I'm out here maintaining, so I'll make it work. Uh, for those of whom are listening, and are watching, Rebecca Ballinger is the Associate Director of the Worlds of Words Center at the University of Arizona here in Tucson, uh, specifically within the College of Education. And Rebecca is also an adjunct professor at Pima Community College in Tucson. And uh, how do you like that? What do you, what do you teach or what, what, what is your, what's your role there? So I teach mainly online and I'm certified to teach writing classes and communication classes. But the class I teach the most is business communication and global settings. It's an asynchronous online class. And I really enjoy it because I feel connected to the students and I feel like we're a community of learners. I, I definitely appreciate Pima Community College and what they do for, for their student population. Something there is something uh, unique about teaching online and pulling people towards the end goal there as well. I have the pleasure of teaching at Vanderbilt online as well, and uh, just being able to to make such a platform work for where the students feel like they're not skipping a beat. There is something uh, intimate about that that I can really appreciate. That <clears throat> the reward, although it's very different than in person. Um, make no mistake about it. There is a, a sense of equitability there that, that I could really, really value. So Rebecca, I just got a couple of questions for you. More than a couple. I have, uh, I have a series of questions for you. Let's go. That, uh, yeah. That I hope that <laughs> you'll find some value in and the listeners who don't know you. And for those who do know you maybe learn something new or a little bit more about you and the wonderful work that you do. So where I want to begin is well, one thing I do know about you, Rebecca, is that you were born in Oklahoma, uh, one of the the reddest states that I know of. Uh, <laughs> I actually learned recently that that key shape of Oklahoma is because Texas had to give up some some land so they could keep the enslaved folks that they wanted due to the Missouri Compromise of 1820. 
Yeah, they didn't want any land that would have been north of the Mason-Dixon line. And, and I think the state of Oklahoma benefited because there's a lots of oil there in the panhandle. Ah, yeah, huh? Interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I yes, we love history. And that is something I came across maybe two or so weeks ago. So that is something I add to the bank and very appropriate for our conversation today. Yeah. Um, specific to Oklahoma, though, Rebecca, you are from Norman? I, I identify as from Norman. I was born in Oklahoma City, but came home from the hospital to Norman. We moved to a town called Midwest City for a little while um, after my parents became a family. Like after we all became a family, my dad had to quit college and stuff. And then we moved back to Norman and then my parents moved to Oklahoma City. So, but that's all within a 17 mile radius. It's all a very compact area. It has a, I have to imagine it has, cause that's where the, that's where the university is. Correct. Yeah. The University of Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, but OU because OU. anything left of the Mississippi is state first university second. And to the right of Mississippi is university first state second. So, uh, university of Kentucky versus Kansas university or other way around or whatever the case is or KU, something like that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, news to me. See, I'm learning yeah. something. Yeah. So, so let's see. OU for the University of Oklahoma and U of O for whatever else would be on the East who also had an OU or a University of like Ohio well, or something I, like that. I know when they were handing out websites, the University of Oklahoma got in quick. And so they got OU.edu. And so quickly. Back <laughs> yeah, in Ohio. <laughs> Oregon, <laughs> whoever else, I don't know. Fair enough. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so I did a little bit of research on Norman specifically, and I pulled up some of the demographics racially and ethnically. I'm going to read a couple. Uh, white folks make up about 77% of the city or the town of Norman, and the state of Oklahoma is at about 60 uh, black people, 4% and Norman, 12.5 in the state. Latino, 8.5 in Norman, 18.7 in the state. Asian, 4.9 in Norman, 4% in the state. Native American, Alaskan Native, 4.0 in Norman, 1.1 in the state. Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander, uh, 0.1 in Norman, 0.2 in the state. And so I'm curious to know, as someone who went to Norman High School and kind of came up in this particular area, how different are those numbers from today from when you came up or is there still somewhat of a, a similarity that kind of rings to you? Uh, my guess is that it would be pretty similar. And I have two reasons for that guess. The first one is that my understanding is Norman was a sundown town. And my second guess is uh, Norman was a bedroom community. So the people who were leaving wow. Oklahoma City were looking for a place with you know, good schools. Um, and so those two things combined may, do make me think that those numbers might not have shifted enough as much as they could have. Um, but also I do understand that nationwide, when I was coming up through Norman High School, the trend nationwide was that we were at our most integrated um, in terms of public education. So while I feel like, I feel like, um, I knew people, particularly in the native population. So I'm surprised that the American Indian population is only at 4% because I feel mm. like 
the people I still communicate with on Instagram or whatever um, are not all white, but um, but I do feel like that's probably pretty representative of my experience then and what I would experience now. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know if I knew, maybe I did, that Norman was a, a sundown town. I'm not surprised. And, you know, for those who don't know, that just means if you are of color, largely black at these, this particular time, I need you out of here by sundown. <laughs> and the thing about sundown towns, right, is it's not just that wasn't just relegated to the South or Southern states. I mean, there were towns and counties in New Jersey who were also implementing such uh, such laws, which, uh, which as we know, permeates into other areas of privilege and, and, and oppression as well. I wanna talk a little bit more about your upbringing uh, in Oklahoma, Rebecca. Yeah, you, are, you are an example of how the system isn't always kind to white folks. Uh, maybe there's a sense of white privilege that you can't shake. Um, and uh, we understand that in its capacity of whiteness. But when we start talking about things like class and, and gender, then and, and the intersections of the two, then we start to have different conversations of how this kind of manifests. Um, how did your upbringing and the social structures um, of the day kind of prepare you for the life that was to come, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, well, I do feel like every step along the way, when you talk about things that I might've experienced that would have otherwise had adverse consequences, I was protected by privilege in a lot of ways. And so mm -hmm. my parents were teenagers when they got pregnant with my brother and this was pre-Roe. So they, you know, got married. Um, mm -hmm. and I had this beautiful story around it that, you know, they had two wedding dates and I was really curious about that. And, you know, there was just a lot of secrecy around it, but I never questioned how, you know, what the negative components of being a teenager parent were. Sure. Um, and so, um, I also moved out of my parents' house at 16 and had an apartment on my own. And I didn't mm. feel like I had, um, I didn't, again, I didn't feel like a homeless teen. I wasn't a homeless teen. Uh, I wasn't a teen on my own even. I didn't leave home because there were problems at home. I just didn't want to live at home. And sure. so, so when I think about a lot of the things that I may have experienced as a result of either of those things, uh, you know, independence, young or being um, having parents who were challenged by their income and education and age, um, and they didn't necessarily stick to me in the same ways. Um, I do remember when I was in college, uh, I, we were supposed to write a paper on a, um, a particular cultural community and I wrote about deaf culture and I got a B on it because the instructor did not feel like deaf culture was their own distinct community and being a person who is mm. um, hard of hearing from childhood like I don't want to say I had a hearing loss because I never had it that was a real you know it was an offense to me but again I was protected by privilege in a lot of ways by that looking at that I didn't I didn't have to wear those judgments in the same way yeah for sure and the privilege you say you were protected by uh, the the privilege you say you're protected by, are we talking about, are you talking about white privilege? What privilege uh, uh, comes to mind for you? Or just, just the, the, the benefits of 
maybe the the culmination of some of the things you named uh two, the totality of those things two kinds in particular white privilege mm-hmm. is certainly one of them although i for for my generation i did have some like physical i got asked a lot where my people are from because i have dark hair and dark eyes and and things like that um i was even asked that question in the back of the of a police car once believe it or not i didn't know it was an illegal oh question to ask and my privilege <laughs> saved me that like total ignorance like i'm sitting in the back of this police car i was pulled over for doing 59 in a 55 zone um i could tell you the whole story i won't what happened, to the, what happened to the five mile an hour buffer i don't well, unwritten rule <laughs> it doesn't work when you are possibly hispanic or native i guess on back roads in oklahoma right um right but the first one is my whiteness. And the second one is a generational wealth um, privilege, I think. Even mm. though my parents didn't have money. And my mom, by the way, had a single mom. And her mom was a single mom, too. But they still had an ability to bring in income. So mm. my great-grandmother, for example, she, had, she was a widow. And she had um, three children. And the state of Oklahoma allowed her to continue to teach, even though teachers weren't allowed to have children. So, mm. so that was that was a way that they had income that we didn't live in poverty in the same way. So if my parents couldn't make ends meet to have dinner or whatever, then my grandmother would bring food over. So, so there was not a lot of, I don't know, there was a lack, but not a lot of necessarily, not a lot of want maybe. Sure. 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 Yeah. Interesting. Well, and, and it's, it's also somewhat of an example of, you know, you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. You know, yeah. you, you mentioned earlier this idea of you don't, you, you don't identify as someone who uh, is part of the community, uh, the deaf community, or, or you wouldn't necessarily establish yourself as someone who has hearing loss because you came up in a way where that was that you didn't lose that over time. This was just some, this was the experience you had in terms of your hearing. Right. And so, you know, what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. And if you come up in I came up in the projects in Massachusetts and I remember walking to pay the rent with my mom and uh, we grew up in the most diverse city in mass at the time. And so race was never front of mind. The class issues were. And so even though people I'm sure were being racist and were behaving in a certain way, it didn't click. I didn't have that information because I didn't know what that was. And so all I knew was, was class-based things. I will say when we moved from Midwest city, to Norman, I saw class, a class hit me in the face, it hit me upside the head big time, mm-hmm. for real. Um, you know, Midwest City, I, I can't really talk about the demographics of it now, but it, it uh, Tinker Air Force Base is there, so there were some Air Force retirees, but I think most of the people were blue collar workers or in service industry. And in Norman, Oklahoma, it seemed like all of the parents were doctors or lawyers, were university professors and my dad worked at the lucky stop which is now a um, parking lot and he worked at the pizza place serving pizza to um, kids who are not who were like right between us in age you know so when I moved to Norman and kids I'd never been on an airplane you know I'd never I'd basically I was just basically did not have the experience or the education that they all had Norman at Mm -hmm. that time had never voted down a bond for education and so the schools were really strong. Um, my my peers were were well versed. They had they had books. They had all kinds of access to knowledge and um, other things that I didn't have. So that was probably my awakening around middle school when we moved to that town. And I was like, wow, this oh. is 
this is amazing in so many ways, but also I am not a part of it. And that's, that was, that sucked to be honest. Yeah. All isolating, you know, and trying to figure out what your place is. And sometimes we start questioning ourselves and, and sometimes we'll, we'll hold our, our parents and those, and those sort of our, our guardians accountable and responsible unduly. Like, and folks are trying to make the best of what they have, but sometimes we, we, we bear the brunt of that as we try to make sense of it. Yeah. And so what, what kind of student would you say you were in Norman? Uh, uh, high school student, uh, middle school, et cetera. Um, were you academically I, inclined? <laughs> I did not. I don't know how. I'm going to try and really dance around this a little bit. <laughs> okay. I did not feel visible in academic settings. Mm-hmm. I could achieve and did achieve when I wanted to, but there wasn't much payback for that. And I, I didn't have anybody watching at home and I didn't have any teachers and I didn't have any friends who were really, you know, invested in my success in that way. Sure. Um, and so it was just, was I internally motivated to, towards that? And sometimes I just wasn't, um, but I also didn't have the energy to be you know, problem child, <laughs> like, that. like sure. I, it wasn't creative or energetic in those ways. And so I just sort of, I don't know, I just sort of like existed in my own space, Yeah, which was nice in a lot of ways, because what it meant was I got to come to my own conclusions. I didn't have a lot of peer pressure. I didn't have parent, parental pressure. I didn't have school pressure. I really sort of followed my own inquiry. Figured it out. As mm-hmm. you, and you have a brother, right? I do. He's my best bud. Is he older, younger? He is two years older than me. He lives older. in New yeah. Orleans. Yeah. And I'm sure you you shared similar some similar experiences coming up together, uh, just trying to figure it out. Uh, did he serve as somewhat of a support system for you as you were navigating those high school days? Yeah, more than anybody else. Um, I'm I'm not like I don't know how he'll feel about me telling all of his stories, but I'll tell one of his stories, which is. Um, um, because I was on my own, I didn't, you know, I didn't really call it. No, first of all, nobody wanted to call my mom from school. Okay. <laughs> like, no, she would be like, I'm at work. What do you want me to do about it? Um, and so I had a stay at home dad for a while. Um, mm-hmm. But when he was, you know, working at the lucky stop, I guess he was technically working, but he was the primary contact and the school wouldn't contact him. So there was this weirdness at the school that I got to take advantage of by putting my brother down as the contact. Ah. And so uh, if I wanted to, you know, maybe not go to school, (laughs) (laughs) my brother would come and get me. My Uh brother had this um, Rambler American three on the tree and some, there was some short in the system where when he would shift those gears, the horn would honk. And so this half rusted blue uh, Rambler would pull up to the school honking every time he shifted gears or whatever. Wow. Uh, really, really announcing my my evil intentions uh-huh. to skin school. Come on. Yeah. I'm guessing anyway, he didn't go there. Um, by that time he was in college. Okay. Gotcha. 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 And, and then the teachers recognized, hey, uh, I forgot I you said his name was. <laughs> yeah. No. Ballinger. I'm, I'm telling you, we weren't, we weren't looked after in that way. Interesting. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, uh, you know, we, I think about school today and the kids today and, you know, just the differences generationally, even, you know, even, you know, although, although I was looked after, like 
the idea of getting to and from school was still my responsibility. And, you know, the parents sort of expected you to, to handle that. We would walk that mile by choice sometimes. And sometimes it was because we had no choice. Yeah. Right? Is this what you're saying? Yeah, let's talk about in, in, Massachusetts, <laughs> in Massachusetts, right? And you got to deal with some of those elements differently. And, uh, you know, I remember one time <laughs> I was in eighth grade, I think. I was in middle school. Me and my my brother and sister, we have uh, three years apart academically. My brother likes to say two years apart age-wise. And because uh, I'm February, they're December of years before. And so we were on a field trip to the high school in middle school. And we were going to, we were walking up and we were walking up as a crew, whole class. And out the blue comes my brother from behind me. I'm like, Yo, what are you doing here? And he's like, I had to go to the bathroom. So he left school, went home, which is about a mile away, went to the bathroom and was on his way back to school. So it was uh, it was hilarious when we talk about, you know, the expectation from the parents to the, to the kids and we fulfilled it. But at the same time, they weren't hovering over you. Right. What's interesting to me about what I'm learning as we're talking about Norman is that's where the University of Oklahoma is. Mm-hmm. And uh I have to imagine there's somewhat of a town gown relationship there. And uh, I went to Salem State University yeah, in Salem, Massachusetts, and town gown relationship there as well. When you think of Salem, you think of Salem State. When you think of Salem State, you think of Salem. Uh, U of A here in Tucson, same deal. When you think of Tucson, University of Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. I have to imagine that's a similar feel in Norman and University of Oklahoma, which you actually wound up attending. Did you wind up going there? because it was the, the most direct route to a, a large scale uh, division one institution, or did you have other plans in mind or how'd you wind up there? Oh, Sherard. <laughs> I was, I had decided to skip school and um, I was exiting Norman high school uh, past the library. And there were two students from the university who had come to gather applications for the university and asked me if I had applied to any colleges and I had applied to none. Applying to colleges cost money. Taking the tests, taking the SAT, the PSAT, the ACT, that cost money. I was living on my own. I was not about to spend, I don't, I think it was like $25, but it seemed like so much money. And I was not about to spend that on an ACT and then lose a shift at work because I have to, you know, spend a Saturday taking that ACT. So I told them, I said, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have any of the things. And they said, well, just fill out the application. I didn't even have a pencil. They loaned me a little golf pencil. So they didn't have their table anymore. I'm sitting on the floor. I'm trying to skip school. I'm being polite. I fill out, (laughs) I fill out the form. By the way, I've never even received a high school diploma. I had a library fine. And so I'm not even sure. I'm not, did I get a diploma? I don't know. And so really, I fell into the college experience. Um, You know, I got a letter in the mail that said the University of Oklahoma accepted me. And that's one of the really great things about public uh, colleges and state schools is that um, that they are charged with finding people like me and educating people like me who maybe weren't at the top of our class or who maybe didn't have, you know, that kind of financial security. Mm. So 
So I wish that I could give you some highbrow. Yes, I've always been an intellectual and, <laughs> and stimulated by the world around me, but but that's not the case. I just happened to get scooped up one day when I was trying to be school. nefarious activities. <laughs> yeah, my brother Excuse didn't me. pick me up that day. I was walking, so just so you know, he is innocent in that whole. Uh, hilarious. Uh, fair enough. You know, you and you know my wife Stephanie, and you know your your story sounds. You know, if I close my eyes, right, it can sound a lot like Stephanie saying something very similar, um, in in terms of of right the the journey and and what was in front of you and the decisions we had to make as a result of of uh, what we were working with. And the cool thing about you, though, Rebecca, is whether you wanted to go or not, you found yourself there and you made the most of that opportunity. I, I learned you wind up with two bachelor's degrees, actually. We have one in intercultural communications and one in journalism. And then you stayed or went back, et cetera, and got your master's in communication. Now you said you wish you had like a highbrow story to share. Like I was always an intellectual, but I have to imagine you were always bright because you don't fall into words at, at that level um, later on or just because you stumbled upon something you liked. And so I ascertained that it seems like language and words kind of was always the plan correct me if I'm wrong. And if so, what was the goal? Why those degrees? And where, where was your mind at at that point in time? Where did you want to see yourself? So when my dad quit school, he went to work for the newspaper writing obituaries. And then he worked his way up and he had great stories about his journalism experience. And I read the newspaper with my dad when I was little. My mother was an English teacher so I used to say that if I ever wrote a novel, it would be about somebody like a serial killer who sought out people who corrected other people's grammar <laughs> <laughs> because I had this journalist father and this oh. like, English teacher mother. And, and actually I have a lot of opinions right now about how, how we police each other's language. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so I definitely had a head start in terms of language. Um, with parenting like that. And I started in the school of uh, journalism and they really taught me how to um, ask questions. And I got really curious. I did take an intercultural communication class um, that sparked my mind about the world. Again, I had never been on an airplane, never like at this age, I had never been on an airplane, but I'm interested mm. in the world. And the internet was coming up, but it what we weren't the global village that we are now we didn't have the same access and so i i was just really interested in those topics i had a great teacher um, for uh, native american histories that taught me also about things that go on in this country that i i wasn't really aware of sure. so it just really was I mean, once you get to a place where somebody's not telling you you have to learn trigonometry or whatever, unless you love trigonometry, my son, that's my son, he really loves math. But once you uh -huh. get to a place where you, you choose what you're learning about, it's it's so easy, so easy to fall into that. I couldn't agree more. It, it, does it help to have some of that, what some might argue, a, a predisposition based on that, the your experiences with your, your dad and your mom? Yes, but I couldn't agree more that when you finally get a chance to, to zone in and to focus, it really shifts the ways in which you are able to contribute to, to the work and to your own passions and dreams. I know that um, I struggled on that side of the brain as well, math and science, hard sciences and stuff like that. 
uh, I was good at chess. I can do logic and strategy, uh, but uh, some of the the hard stuff was challenging, the, the, the long, long division kind of things. Um, I remember I, I wasn't a great student, definitely not in high school. I had, I was like the, when if you try to pull up a stereotypical jock, that was me, maybe tone down some of the toxic masculinity a little bit. It was there for sure, because I came up in the projects and at a particular time. But, you know, I wasn't some some meathead. You know what I mean? I wasn't out here in the gym. Brolic. I was like 160, 155. Uh, but I had like a 2.1 GPA. I was like 18th from last in my class. Even in my when I went for my undergrad degree, I had like a two. I was on academic probation to become an RA. But when I got to my master's program to really begin to focus on what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do it for me. My entire mind changed. And so I went from this 2.9, 3.0 GPA to being the commencement speaker at my graduation and getting a scholarship award uh, as a result of, of my commitment to the work. So I couldn't agree more. I think that was really well said. And I, I wanted to emphasize that because I get a lot of young people who are like a little bit lost on where they are in their journey. And I don't know if I can do this or if it's right for me. I try to remind them that, you know, one thing about college is you get to zone in the focus and if you nail that focus, then you get a chance to really um, so you sort of stick with it and, and, and see what happens as you pursue that in that way. By the way, before I go to my next question uh, about the University of Oklahoma, um, do you think Dr. Kim remembers you now if she were to hear this? Uh, no. <laughs> you don't think so? I do. I definitely don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if she saw it. Why did you pick Dr. Kim? How did you know that I studied with Dr. Kim? My job is to do research, Rebecca. That's what we do. Okay. Well, so she wasn't, she did not sit on my committee for my mm -hmm. master's thesis. By that time, I sort of was interested in, um, you know, digital communications. So even mm -hmm. though I do have a language stuff, like computers are really, they're, they're language-based too. So, um, so I had a little, by the time I got into my master's, I had a little different group but definitely i do not think dr kim would remember me no, okay. <laughs> no well, i feel i hope my hope and prayer is that dr phil luhan would remember me because okay. i remember him sure he had a huge impact on me yes. and the way i think and i feel like if i had an advocate ever in the educational system it would have been uh, phil luhan i love i love that you said that i don't think faculty Faculty, being in the in the academy, you working in higher ed as well. We understand the critiques of faculty. Some absolutely just do, no question about it. But some a little bit unfair as well. And uh, as an adjunct, you know, you understand that you're trying to do the best you can uh, for the students in ways that make sense by meeting them where they are. And sometimes we take cues from our own past. And the fact that you're giving some faculty love, I appreciate. I have some faculty who I try to mimic and do the work with as well that um that really influenced me so but dr kim if you are listening listening or watching this is rebecca ballinger keep listening as we hear these incredible stories uh uh increase and go on so while you were putting these degrees to work and 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 really framing and and polishing your your passions and love for communications uh you founded the professional writer society and served as president. Wow. <laughs> Tell yeah. me about that. I'm, I'm not sure what to, uh, I wanted, 
So I think I had a dream. I didn't, I don't think, I know. I had a dream of moving to New York City. I wanted to live in a walkable city. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to work on glossy magazines. And um, and so professional writing was an avenue through the School of Journalism that you could go that didn't focus in the same way on hard news. And, and you could bring fiction into it. And so um, there was not another club on campus that did it. So. Mm -hmm. So, so I did. And how long did it last? Um, it, I, I, it lasted a couple of years while I was there. I'm not sure if it continued after I mm -hmm. left, but I remember when I created it, I was a little surprised because um, you, there's paperwork that you complete and you have to recruit to people to your club and, and have elections and you know, have bylaws. And I had never done any of that before. And so um, so that was a process that made me talk to the, um, the department uh, personnel and the staff mm -hmm. in the School of Journalism, which, which was a skill that I gained in that moment. I never really had to talk to people like that. That right. kind of um, structure is some, a skill that I gained in that moment. I never really had to do anything like that before. Sure. And that actually led to other things. So when you're doing something you haven't done before, that is part of an established process that you don't know anything about, and you feel like you're pinging around like a pinball, which is exactly how I felt at that time. Mm -hmm. It had it. One of the things that it yielded was one day, uh, one of the um, one of the staff members in the journalism department said, "Hey, how come I have never seen your name come up? Like you've never applied for any of our scholarships." And I was like, well, I didn't even know that there were scholarships. Honestly, when I started school, I didn't even know about financial aid. I knew about nothing. Same. <laughs> and so talking to this staff member and finding out there were scholarships, I think I completed one form and they applied and they sent that form to everyone that they applied for. And I won. I earned a scholarship, which nobody had ever invested in my education in that way. It right. was a profound experience. So I don't have a lot to say about the professional writing group, except that we exchanged stories and there were an amazing number of stories of characters who were caught on the toilet by robbers or, <laughs> you know, fell or something like that. The toilet, I don't know why, really centrally featured in those stories. Yeah. But um, but the, the, the value for me personally in the right. professional writing association was was a learning one and those skills are the same skills I use today those are the same processes for starting nonprofits there it, it's just you know you start to see those things come up over and over uh, and so that was my first exposure that's great and and really that's um for me that's where the value is right that's that's why we do certain things um a lot of times the credentials the accolades that's that's to kind of check the box for society very not often enough do we engage in an endeavor for ourselves right for the intrinsic benefit so the value you got out of it that you just named i think is the reason why something like the uh the professional writer society matters even if you got some career advancement that's that's nice to name but we can name a thousand other things that uh, you know moved us along in our lives but really didn't feel genuine and authentic so so i i love that you had the chance to to engage that um not many people know this 
but you also played rugby. Oh my gosh. So you got your, you got your hands dirty, Rebecca. And not only did you play, you were fantastic. As I understand you, uh, you weren't only the most valuable back one year, but you represented the Western women's sevens over in Las Vegas at one point in time. Yes, Talk to yes. me about this rugby journey. Okay. Well, let's not overstate it, but I've always, <laughs> I really have always loved athletics ever since I was little. And um, we played six on six basketball center court because girls didn't have the stamina to run up and down the court. But I remember just loving sports as a kid. And then hearing things like that, girls don't have the stamina. It's not for wow. girls. And then in middle school, uh, you weren't really allowed to excel as an individual athlete. You, you had to really focus on the team. And so I got discouraged. I got discouraged a lot from athletics. And then I was working for the um, student newspaper at the University of Oklahoma, and my beat mm -hmm. was, um, was athletics. Um, by the way, I also got kicked out of the uh, athletic facility. <laughs> That's maybe, maybe we'll get into that story in just a minute. But okay. I decided to write a story about the women's rugby team um, because, you know, you hear about men's sports a lot. So I decided to write about the women's rugby team. And these women were master manipulators. They were like, you know, Rebecca, you can't really understand this sport until you play this sport. Ah. Come try, come try. And it, and, um, uh, you know, I'm fast. I, I may not have a lot of endurance and I'm not necessarily really bulky, but I could at that time, I can, I can no longer, but at that time I could run really fast. And so I can tell you, there is nothing like the, for me personally, there is very little in this world as satisfying as being, you know, in this a perspective time, like the, the zone or whatever where you are working with other people as part of a team towards some greater goal and that, um, and that they will give you this ball and you can run it all the way down the field and place it on the ground. And then all, oh, everybody's like, ah, oh, it's such pleasure. Like uh -huh. there's not a lot like that. I think that's why we enjoy football games together. I think that's why we enjoy, you know, whatever it is, is that we have a feeling that we're all in it together like, yes and 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 I loved that and they they hooked me in and um I was a solid player however I'm sure I could I think I think if I were playing today's rugby I might not be as successful has the game changed or um well the uniforms have changed and I don't they're like <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have to feel good in your uniform to play well, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel the same about basketball. You know, the, I came up at a time when bigs were still a thing, when there was back to the basket basketball, and um, they were moving away from the post being the main weapon, but they, they still mattered. You know, Shaq was someone you still got the ball to. You know, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, you still got the ball to these guys and got out the way. Nowadays, these, these these types of plays don't even exist. And it's, I don't want to call it a critique of the NBA, but it is a critique in a sense. Um, and when you have old heads like me griping, you know, our golden age is always way back when. I don't care if it's music, wrestling, doesn't matter. Anybody after a certain decade, we just don't even pay attention to. Um, so I, I feel you there. Uh, if I were to play, which is 
you know, I talked about bruising my Achilles earlier because I tried to play <laughs> and maybe it's because I was trying to do a style that doesn't exist and no one else has to worry about the contact like that. Uh, so, so, Hey, uh, you know, you said, don't overstate it. I still think those are wonderful accomplishments. I mean, you won an award for Pete's sake. And yeah, I love, I love my team a lot. And they, they sang that's what friends are for at my wedding. Oh, and nice. I mean, sometimes, sometimes when I'm having a really good dream, it's going to be about a team like that. Yeah. Like the OU Roses. Mm, that was, that was a very special time for me. And, and it was an honor to play for the Western women's uh, sevens. <clears throat> I made the first try of the tournament in Las Vegas. And so they let mm -hmm. me keep the trophy, which was like six feet tall. It was huge. <laughs> um, but they also made me kick my own extra points. You get two extra points. And that mm. was humiliating. It was <laughs> no good, like, huh? There are no special teams in rugby. And so um, the Roses had a really great uh, fullback who kicked for us. Um, but it was a, it was, it was a uh, humbling experience to have to try yeah. that myself. Indeed. <laughs> well, at least you got a chance to do it. And that kind of goes back to the early comment that you mentioned. Someone said you can't really speak about it unless you actually get out there and make it happen. And um, sometimes, if nothing else, you leave with an experience that says, I did it and it was terrible. Or I did it and it was great. Either way, I'm glad I had a chance to talk about that. Lovely, Re Rebecca. Let's 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 talk more about writing and, and language arts, which, as I mentioned earlier, seemed to always have been a passion of some sort for you. Um, but it doesn't seem like literature became much of a career focus until you moved to Tucson around the, the turn of the millennium, uh, and a career focus in, in particular. Uh, I know you used to work as web editor and social media manager. Uh, at Bookman's, which out here in Tucson. Uh, and you had many years, of course, at the university and have many years at the University of Arizona. So what exactly was it that helped you turn that corner into seeing and positioning literature as a profession specifically, rather than web design and, and content creation? Um, so uh, the, this may be familiar to you. Growing up in, in a university town, when you get to sort of just crawl all over campus, you're not a student, you're just exploring the campus. Mm -hmm. You get a sense of how we value education. You have these beautiful old structures, these buildings, et cetera. I had worked for an independent bookstore in Norman, and then I worked for the University of Oklahoma Library's Western History Collections, and that special collections, I was there for maybe three years. Um, that just was, it seemed, it didn't seem part of my world. I was there as a, as a worker and not as a researcher. Um, and next to the Western History Collection was a World Literature Today, and they were looking at international literature. And that felt, both of those spaces felt aspir aspirational, like mm. academia and the literary world. They were really aspirational for me. Um, and I worked at a book publisher to the University of Oklahoma Press. I was there for a couple of years. So I was like in these adjacent worlds um, at that time. But when we moved to Tucson, I was pregnant and I had to just find um, employment that maybe wasn't, that didn't fit what I was. I had been a writer. I had been programs manager for um, a, uh, an organization called the Citizens League of Central Oklahoma that did policy and worked with sort of people who were decision makers, but I couldn't, I didn't feel like I, a lot of women make that choice. 
I'm, tr- mm-hmm. I'm trying to dance around this. But a lot of women sort of backtrack in their career so that they can be the mom, so that they could do the both gotcha. jobs. Like you cannot have it all. I'm just, if that's some people say that you can. I did not feel that I could. And so I took a part-time job um, as an editorial assistant for a journal called Language Arts. And again, mm-hmm. I'm reading about academia. I'm not actually doing anything with academia. Um, and so it's still really aspirational. Um, but then one day, the director of World's Awards, Kathy Short, came to me. We had finished language arts. That editorship had gone away. Mm-hmm. And she had this idea. She had been a first grade teacher and had a classroom library. And just as her career grew and became more international, that library uh, became more international. And she asked if I would help her with the sort of structural, organiz- organizational, operational components of that. And so really it was that invitation from her that sort of started me uh, on a path that focused on literature in that way. Yeah. And then you, was that, you wound up in WOW, World of Words, Worlds of Words as a result or? Yeah, at that time uh, we called it ICAL, the International Collection of Children and Adolescent Books, but it quickly ICAL, became okay. WOW. And now it's the uh, World's Awards Center of Global Literacies and Literatures. Um, I did, after that was established, I left the university. I went to work for Bookman's, um, which is a chain of, it, at that time there were seven stores. There's an online operation. There's some other things going on with it. I really enjoyed that time at Bookman's because they were driven by four core values. And I had never worked someplace that made it so clear what their core values were. Mm-hmm. Um, censorship, um, animal rights, the environment. Um, they really they really sort of directed us in those ways. And, and the, the marketing budget would be spent on those core values. And there was a lot of autonomy for people. I'm not saying it's perfect. No place is perfect to work, but, but it was really, it seemed like an unusual way to run a retail operation. And I was Mm. digging it. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed my coworkers too. I, I, from every level uh, of that organization, I enjoyed the coworkers, Uh, smart people, innovative, creative, funny, smart, people I'm going to say that twice (laughs) probably because they're surrounded by books all day and books are either (laughs) going to fill you with empathy you know if you're reading in fiction you you can empathize with people or they're reading nonfiction and they're feeding their intellectual brain so yeah I did enjoy that but then my kids um decided that they were going to go to college and that costs some money (laughs) So yes. I came back. I came back to the university gladly, happily. Came back sure. to the university. Was there a job opening, or was it always kind of just like, hey, whenever you, whenever you need, whenever you want to come back, Rebecca, just let me know. Um, I feel like Dr. Short and I had a a good working relationship, so I knew right. I could come back if I wanted to. And um, uh, but it turns out that the person who had sort of taken over for me at that time, it was he had decided to retire. And so mm-hmm. that slot had opened and, and it was just really good timing. Fair was, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And so ICAL, uh, Bookman's, and then back to the university. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk more about WOW then. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you do and, and what WOW is. Uh, and um, just give us some insight on, on, on your day to day there. 
So Worlds of Words is the largest collection of global children's literature that I know of in the United States and probably wow. the second largest in the world. Um, the, I, the idea, well, the first largest is in a castle in Munich, Germany. It's called the International Youth Library. And, oh, and wow. that is an amazing place. And I am telling you, Sherard, if I can, I'm going to get a castle here. Was, <laughs> have you been by the way, to, to this place? I, I have not been oh, imagine to the that? but I would love to go. I, I mean, it, it's it, it, in pictures, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, so what our goal is, is to expand perspectives through global children's literature. So um, that really seemed to dovetail nicely with what I went to college for, that interest in the global community. And mm -hmm. we're still talking about books. And we're talking about learners, young people who are learning about the world. And so those are three things that mean a lot to me. I'm passionate yeah. about all three of those things. Um, and so that's what I get to do every single day I go into work. Sometimes it's pretty glamorous, but sometimes it's not so glamorous. You know, you still have to do your financials and, and all of that of stuff. Of course, yeah. Does, does WOW, because of its capacity that you just named and, and its size... Does it serve the university or is it just, does it just serve the college? So it serves the college in that um, we are working with teacher educator or pre-service teachers uh, and teacher educators um, to help them learn how to incorporate this kind of literature in the classes when they get into the classroom. And because we have the books, it means that those students don't have to buy the books. So it's mm. nice that they have that, that research area and they also have that sort of cushion with their funding. We do also serve, um, we have visits from a lot of classes. Uh, uh, your wife has come in. Um, we've had um, psychology come in. We've had anthropology classes come in. If, if there are classes that are interested in um, the world or social studies or whatever, English classes, they they are they all kind of come in and and sometimes they just want to see the collection and sometimes we offer them a little bit of guidance or instruction or a tour, mm -hmm. um, and then we are also open to the public and we have a lot of field trips come in. We don't charge any money for field trips because again, um, it's within our mission to try and provide these services and so sure. we want to make it as accessible as possible. So there yeah. is no admission, there is no field trip charge. Um, and we have weekend programming too. We have reading ambassadors at the middle school age and at the teen age, and we give them a book. But then you remember sort of going back to the benefits of starting um, the Professional Writing Association at the University mm -hmm. of Oklahoma. Having teenagers uh, get a book that they then read and we have a lit discussion the same way that we would have a lit discussion in college definitely bridges that that you know, high school to college gap. You're welcome sure. here. You can do this work here, et cetera. But then they get a second book that they have to share with their school librarian or their English teacher or something like that. And that means that now they're talking to adults. They're talking to people outside their peer group and they're learning right. sort of other methods of doing business. So, so we do it all. We administer to the College of Ed and to the broader university and to the community as well. That's great. That's that's incredible. If I'm just curious, if you were to put an age range on uh, the groups who would benefit most from the books that are in there, 
like uh, who want to come and read those books and it's tailored to a particular age group? What's the, what would the age range be? I actually would not do that, Gerard. I don't feel like people age out of picture books. Um, we have an exhibit right now that is centered around Chinese exclusion in terms of U.S. immigration. And that is a very serious topic and is accessible to young children. Um, but it is also something that I think that full-grown adults need, you know, sort of help thinking around those concepts with, you know. So I'm not sure I would say that there is any one group that would benefit more or less. I will say that um, our primary target audience is pre-service teachers. And outside of that, what we care about is supporting the emotional and intellectual growth of young people. And so I guess more my question is when you say young people, um, who, who, who is that? What's that demographic? So the books, if you look in the tracings, I guess, in the books, the bibliographic tra tracings that are on the sort of front matter of a book, mm -hmm. you're going to see sort of more birth to age 24. So you're mm -hmm. not going to see a lot. I, there are books that are written for adults that appeal to younger people, um, but those are not necessarily the books that we're going to have there. Gotcha. I ask because uh, for those listening and, and who may not know, uh, worlds of words or what uh, children's books are or what young adult is and what that means and what that looks like. Um, I want them to have an idea of maybe who the target audience is and that it doesn't have to stop there. Uh, there are, there are a fair amount of people out there who are um, very rigid in the sense that, well, tell me why and, and, and show me and, and, how do I know this is for me? And so I think you make a sound point where it's, it's this idea that um, anybody can benefit from it. But here's why I want, but the maybe the presentation or the content is not like reading a final report from NASA uh, who might be targeted at this audience, but it is gonna be like reading this that's digestible for this particular age group in ways that help you have this conversation or find the importance. Um, in this particular topic. So that was really with the genesis of that particular question. I think uh, it's my own personal bias, but I think that the book community for birth to age 24, we'll just say that age, is um, a lot more aware, I think, in some ways of the reading community and the needs of the reading community. Sure. And um, there's an organization called We Need Diverse Books that started talking about this on Twitter before they were an organization and now they're an organization. And what we've seen in the community for younger readers is this great richness and wealth of stories that are now being published that bring sort of more equity into your reading. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that I see that in adult, in literature for adults. So right. I would say in, in a lot of ways, even though we're focusing on these books that are for birth to age 24, I would say these books in some ways offer a lot more story to, to the reader. <laughs> birth to age 24 is a decent gap, which is why I chuckle. <laughs> it's like this yeah. nice little all-encompassing 
<laughs> well, uh, I mean, so you have you have picture books, you have chapter books, and then you have YA or adolescent or teen books. So, gotcha. um, so they're not. It's not all the same. That the the format maybe is what's different, mm-hmm. right? But the content is still as gripping, as still as complex, is still as challenging, even though maybe the lexile level or the reading level might be less complicated. Fair enough. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's, let's, let's stay here for a little bit more. Um, I, you know, I, I do loads of workshops and trainings and um, just DEI and justice conversations day in and day out. And one thing I always try to remind people and at least hammer home is that, you know, uh, DEI workshops or workshops in general are not designed to change the system. They're designed to raise awareness. Um, and I'll have people look back and say, you know, we brought in this trainer or these couple of trainers, and I just don't believe in DEI training anymore because nothing's changed. Well, that's not the intent of the workshop. The intent is to raise awareness. If you want real change, we need to start talking about systemic stuff, get more on the org development side of the house and talking about design and behaviors, system things. But that's not the purpose of the workshop. And so as you talked about diverse books and birth to 24 and target audiences, I'm curious to know if you think that that sentiment is applicable to the, to the role that representation plays in books is the expectation that representation will now change the overall uh, nature and being of a book or in the book community, or is the role of representation just to raise awareness? Like, Hey, we have books who have these people in it, regardless of what the story is. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, uh, the, does the presence of representation impact the the uh, the overall experience of the book, or does it just add a couple of characters? And now we can just kind of keep it moving. Well, I mean, there are hmm. so there is a researcher, Rudine Sims Bishop, who I like to talk about in relation to these kinds of conversations, and she says she 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 says that every young person deserves books that are windows and books that are mirrors and then sliding glass doors. But let's focus on windows and mirrors. Mm -hmm. So uh, a mirror book is exactly what it sounds like. It's a book that reflects your own perspectives, your own experiences, et cetera. And a window book is a book that gives you a perspective into somebody else's experiences and and perspectives but as you know windows and mirrors come in all shapes and sizes and quality and so um and so as you're reading a book that may supposed to be a mirror for you um and it gets some things right but some things aren't quite right you're that's going to sit with you a certain kind of way um and so uh, I think, well, let's, let's just sort of back up a little bit and say, like, short, yeah, if you were a child, and you were reading a book about um, a boy who is just like you in so many ways, what would what would impact? What impact would that have on you? Like, like Jabari, Jabari jumps. I love Jabari jumps. <laughs> That's such a great book. I'll tell you what, I, 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 I get your question. I, I was never really a reader, though. But how I will answer this in the name of representation, I was thinking this to myself the other day is 
the movie Glory, I first came across in eighth grade and it changed my entire life. And I couldn't put anything, I couldn't pinpoint it. Like I didn't have the language, but I knew that this was an all black regiment of soldiers in the civil war. And although I wasn't a soldier, definitely not at that age, there was something about seeing myself on the screen or a story that I could connect to, maybe not in practice, but understanding my ancestry that really just, it's my favorite movie of all time now, but really just took off to me. And if I was a reader, uh, I'd imagine that I, uh, it definitely would have impacted me positively. So I think of a lot of young people who don't see themselves represented in books who then decide that they must not be a reader because none of the books are for them. Sure. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's one of the things that sort of, I think about a lot. I, Obviously, I'm interested in the window books because that was my interest in, in international literature and international culture and mm -hmm. um, wanting to live in a more global setting. So that was really powerful to me. I never did find a whole lot of books that were mirror books for me, but I have them because of where I, of where I am. Um, window books, I have to seek out. Now for you, probably fewer mirror books and a lot more window books. But one of the things we're seeing with um, Halle Bailey's depiction of The yeah. Little Mermaid uh -huh. is that representation has makes a huge big deal. And people have on one way or the on, other. Yeah, on both exactly. sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we just recently, Worlds of Words just recently published, uh, Desiree Cueto and Daria Klecker came up with 12 books. And this was, this was not related to this trailer. This came out a couple months ago. 12 books for um, birth, age 24, that mm -hmm. featured Black mermaids and sirens. Those exist. And so this idea that somebody was like, well, it has to be like all mermaids are red-headed white ladies is just like not even true like we i can i could at least i know of at least 13 books that i can direct you towards and so um so there's not like maybe there's a, like a little bit of of quashing of those voices which is which is disturbing but mm. but they exist they're out there and so how are we gonna not enough of them i will say mm -hmm. because we still very much limit which voices are heard um, sure. but but I want to share those resources. I want everybody to I want everybody to be as happy as all of those children who watched that trailer are. Yes. When Ariel, you know, breaches the surface. I, uh -huh. Maybe she's still underwater. Maybe she doesn't come out above water. But when she <laughs> I hits get the, the camera like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Uh -huh. So singing, yeah, I get to see. <clears throat> and and uh, and you know the power I've seen of representation that of course, and we knew this going into it, but. Um, like we said, on either side has been really, really palpable um, and uh, disheartening to say the least, but dare I say, not terribly unsurprising. Uh, the US, we just need to get it together. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Anyway, um, I wanted to, I wanted to piggyback off of something you said, but it, it, it slipped my mind uh, and it'll come back to me because I want to stay here a little bit longer. Um, thinking about the role that that diversity, equity, inclusion, even justice plays in books. <clears throat> um, do you, I, I don't know if it's to 
you mentioned the mirror, you mentioned the the window. I don't know if it's to to find a a different way to pass the message. Uh, my TED talk years ago was on comic books and how that can be used. Fantasy can be used as a way to understand the world around you. Uh, how you can learn about uh, you know masculinity through Wonder Woman and 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 female empowerment. How you can learn about racism through the X Men. How you can learn about good and evil. Superman, introversion, Batman, right? And so there's all these DEI concepts wrapped in the literature, right? In the in in the canons and the serials. Do you think that? I mean, what? Two questions. What's the role of DEI in in books and literature? And do you think that uh, there is more? Uh, do you think that it's it, it it's more? There's more leverage in getting that message across in fiction or nonfiction, or uh, is it really how you present the information? Long question, but I'm trying to isolate that for you so you can get it. Um, I think that, of course, nonfiction is important, and I really personally enjoy nonfiction and memoir biography is a form yeah. of nonfiction that is, is in a story format. But I do think stories, fictional stories contain a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth in, in fictional stories. Sure. And um, once you, you know, take that in, absorb it, think about it a little bit, it, it changes our relationships to one another. Yeah. So, um, so, so that's one thing. The question is large. So I'm going to have to really think about it as much in answering it as you did in presenting it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that fiction sometimes, that nonfiction could sometimes lend itself to when you're talking about, when you're factually describing a group, sometimes you stay at that surface culture level. So you're talking about food, which, ew, you would eat that can otherwise people you talk about fashion that's weird i wouldn't wear that or i would wear that to a costume party again it otherizes Mm -hmm. it has the potential anyway to otherize otherize so if you're looking at um non-fiction as as fashion or festivals or famous people and etc then you're going to really stay at that superficial culture and you might not be able to dive in fiction lets you go beneath the surface Fiction lets you start talking about our common experiences. Every child wears shoes or some sort of foot covering. Every child has grandparents. Every child has some way of learning or relating to the world, such as school. Every child, you know, loses a tooth. There are, there are these common experiences that we have, but we approach them differently. And if we hear a story about that, then that gives us a chance to say, well, that's that is an interesting way to experience that. That's not my experience altogether, but I can still relate because I have still, I have my own grandparents and I know Mm. how I love them and I know how I respect my elders. And I know, for example, that kind of thing. So, so, I mean, like you get at them in different ways. Also, you know, there, I'm guessing, I don't know this for sure. This is a laity view. But I'm guessing that a lot of times descriptive 
um, information about groups of people or nationalities comes from a, maybe an anthropological viewpoint, which sure. is very Western based. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's very much a dominant culture gaze mm -hmm. and describing the facts. And so you might not get all of those facts right, or you might interpret them in different ways. Um, whereas if you get a story that's written by somebody from that cultural group, you will have a more authentic story. You will have more insight into the truth of that person's existence than if somebody from the outside is explaining it. Yeah, I I just recently one thing about me is that I I listen and watch across the gamut, political aisles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there was and a lot of people don't do that. And I understand it. You don't want to put yourself through the through a space of listening to somebody whose intent is to uh, possibly harm or uh, devalue or delegitimize your existence. And I was watching uh, this guy, Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire the other day. You're familiar. And he was I watched his critique of the Black Little Mermaid and why uh, white folks are just in their frustration. At least the white folks who are frustrated and how he's comparing it to, you know, how some actors and actresses were shunned for and had to apologize for playing roles. And the difference was that he was pointing out that I noticed was that he was naming white actors playing non-fictional people, like actual Egyptians or actual Asian folks. Uh, and then black character, black people playing like fictional characters. And most of these fictional characters in their original form, it's not spelled out in the, in the script, if you will, that says, doesn't say six to white or pale skin with like blue eyes. It's like six to lean or athletic build, and comes from this background at that point in time, the game, the, the ballpark's open. I mean, that's how they kind of framed James Bond. So that's when they threw Idris Elba in there and people were like, no, 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 no. James Bond is white. Well, tell me where. And I saw somebody write down a post one day. Uh, oh, well, wait till they find out what Jesus really looked like. <laughs> you know, and they, go, and they go off in arms. Right. Uh, so uh, I want to move forward, but what, do you have any other thoughts on, on books and, and the, the impact of books there? We I, I want to say I, to, to your point, the default is always going to be white. Yes. And not only is the default going to be white, the default is going to be a U.S. based for us right. anyway, or right. Western. So yes. it's not just a it's a nationality default that we have as well. And it's so strong in us that, by the way, I want to I want to mention um, in Hunger Games, Rue mm -hmm. is a character who is outlined in the book as an African-American. Well, I guess it's not America as a black character. We sure. know from the book that Rue is a black character, but she is beloved. So when that book got made into a movie and Rue was cast with a black actress, yeah. people were upset. Rue's not black. Absolutely. Really? She is. Yeah. Go look it up. It's so, so not only. Amanda uh, Stenberg. Yeah. Yeah, not only is this tendency to <laughs> sort of want to keep white things white, sometimes we want to keep black things white. Yeah. And that was well, the case I, of, the, of Rue in the Hunger Games. Or, or or dare I say maybe literature in general, right? Or right, the the influence that it has. Like this, this, this medium should also be Eurocentric in its presentation, its narratives. And yeah. the last thing I wanted to say, it came back to me was I feel like you shared this with me years ago, or or we talked about it, but I came across it as I was getting ready for today. 
it's from 2018. I don't know if there's an updated one, but it showed like the 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 percentages of folks of color, I think, in children's books and uh, from least to greatest. I think it was somewhere around like a like Native American, maybe Asian, Latino, black and then like animals. Yeah, like 27 percent. And then white folks at 60 percent of the characters. And I was just like, wow. And and you see that in in comics as well. I I, I haven't picked up comics in a while and, and since the pandemic hit, really. But, um, you know, Martian Manhunter, for example, of the DC universe is this Martian who can shapeshift. And uh, in modern, in the modern era, he turns into a black guy. But generally, he's a white dude. And it kind of, you almost ask yourself, you know, he's making a decision to shapeshift. Why would he want to turn into a black guy if he's going to be in the U.S.? And it's almost as if he says to himself, well, let, let me... If I had to turn into anybody, it's going to be a white guy uh, so I can even find safety in my human form because people would take more to me in my Martian form as an alien than they would as a black American. Right. And so it's it's interesting how, as I mentioned in my TED Talks, I did the reality of fantasy is that fantasy is reality and that even the racism we think the one place we think we can go to escape racism and and other isms is very much still apparent in those worlds too uh so i always found that to be to be interesting uh so, so the statistics you're talking about come from the cooperative uh cooperative children's book center and they do them every year um and that's you know when i say i think we see the influence of the we need diverse books movement is um we are seeing better numbers they're still not at um representation and sure. even when they hit representation, that's going to be a problem. And if you want to explore that, I'll tell you why. But initially, you did see the books that featured characters that were white go from like 75% to 50%, but that animal mm -hmm. category increased. They're not, sometimes you can have a, a non-human character that is culturally specific. Poncho um, sure. and Rabbit, I think, is an example of one. Um, so, so you can, but, but moving characters into like Clifford territory or, um, you know, a car or something like that does not bring you to representation. It would, I agree with you. It was an interesting thing, thing to see that bump happen in non-human yeah. characters. Yeah. You're still yeah. more likely to see a non-human character than you are to see an African-American in children's literature. Uh, and yeah, for sure. Interesting. And, and I, I, I absolutely believe that. Um, so um, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of excellence. Okay. I love that group. <laughs> what is this group, Rebecca? Uh, and why did it feel important to you to, to be a part and remain a part of this group? Um, a Legacy of Excellence is sort of an ad hoc committee for the Tucson Unified School Districts. Um, at that time, when I started African American Studies Department, but now it's under, I get the initials wrong. It's it's not DEI, it's another combination yeah. of those letters. Yeah. Um, they focus on uh, scholarships for college-bound African Americans in the TUSD school district. Um, over years, these 
scholarships have increased. That at first they had two scholars. Now they had then then they had twelve scholars. At first they were two thousand dollar level. Now they're five thousand dollar level. They also get laptops as they go on for college preparedness, and it's not earmarked. It's not a scholarship that says, you know, we're going to only pay for tuition. There are a lot of expenses for college students that aren't tuition books fees. They, they are other things, you know, and if, if you go away to college and you're on your own, maybe you need a crock pot, you know, maybe you need something that's going to help you eat or something like that. So they're right. not, they're not restricted in the way the students can, can spend them. Um, I was on the board of an organization called the Educational, Educational Enrichment Foundation, which also served to USD. Sitting on that board was uh, was a um, a friend of mine uh, who invited who invited me at first to just the buffets, um, and so not the not the buffets. Um, I'm having like a little mind blip right now. Excuse me. So I, initially, I began attending the um, the banquets. So the big donor funding thing. And then mm -hmm. I was sitting on the site council at Tucson High and we were talking about how to spend tax credit money, which is uh, specific to Arizona. I don't know how it works elsewhere, but you can only spend it in certain ways. And somebody who was sitting on that uh, site council with me, Richard Langford, asked me if I would be interested in um, getting to know a little bit more about a legacy of excellence. Mm -hmm. And so I was invited to an, an informational meeting with uh, Jeffrey Sawyer and Natalie Clark. And they invited me to be part of that organization, which was a really, it was an honor for me. And I talk about Natalie this way a lot. Natalie, I, I don't know her on a personal level very well, mm -hmm. but she has a presence that when she's around you, you feel comfortable, you feel like you're at home. And I don't know why she reminds me of being in Oklahoma. I don't think she has any connection at all. <laughs> it's just super kind I think mm -hmm. and so um so I so it's it's just my honor like again it goes back to young people it goes back to uh, the the desire to learn it goes back to um the way that we hold at bay education for certain people and communities we make it mm -hmm. harder for them to go to school and yes. I don't want it be I don't want it to be hard for people oh. to go to school so the fact that Richard and Jeffrey and Natalie have, have allowed me this position to um, directly impact people is, it means a lot to me. It's probably one of the most important things um, that I do. And I did not expect it to come up here, which is probably why I stuttered on my words a little bit, um, because it's also still an emotional spot for me, because... Yeah because it is so enriching into my life. I definitely, I definitely get more out of that process than probably I put into that process. It, well, it's, 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 it's important to name because of the community it serves and you're, you're a part of it. So I wanted to, to make sure you had a chance to speak on behalf of it. And it's a uh, centers around black students. And for me, that's obviously incredibly important. And you know that I, want to be involved in this when it when it first came when you first mentioned it to me in the past I 
I didn't connect the dots because it wasn't spelled out. I don't take any responsibility for that. But once I connected the dots, you know, that is something I've been eager to be a part of. As soon as those those uh, stars align or the next one pops up, um, I'm, I'm all in. And as you mentioned, there are the systems in place that are designed to be preventative for the success of certain people. And uh, education is is has been at the top of that list since the founding of this country. So the fact that you're involved in something like a legacy of excellence is is uh, an incredible thing. And uh, anything I can do to support that, I want to make sure that that happens. And for folks listening, uh, check it out. You know, get yourself some background on what that is, and if you're able to contribute please definitely do so. So I'll do the URL shout out. It's at TUSD1.org slash legacy. TUSD1.org slash legacy. Check that out, y'all, as soon as you can. And if not, do it tomorrow then. (laughs) Rebecca, (laughs) a couple more questions and I'm going to get you out of here. Okay, great. Um, Rebel Nation. That's R E B L nation yeah uh i i read a fair amount of your stuff dating all the way back to 2007 um i i i read through some things uh oh my lord some some powerful some funny your life some (laughs) some profound some eyebrow raising uh is there one post in particular uh over the past 15 years that i came across on there that really stands out to you First of all, Rebel, R-E-B-L, is Rebecca Long. L-O-N-G is my main name. And okay. so I used to sign my letters to my dad, Rebel, and he would sign his letters to me, Rebel. So that's where Rebel comes from. Nice, nice, nice. So it does not have Southern connections. So I'm gotcha. going to make that clear. First uh-huh. of all. Secondly, I created that website because it was a platform that I could use to experiment um, for the work that I did for Bookmen's and the work I did for Worlds of Words, I would go there and I would nice. take something up. Um, in terms of what I have done lately with it, um, you know, there are two there are two general kinds of content that I post there. One kind is um, personal and sometimes mm-hmm. highly personal things that I would not feel comfortable sharing in a face-to-face context. Somehow I feel comfortable sharing with the world. Sure, sure. And then uh, and then a lot of book stuff. Um, and the book stuff is usually the more experimental stuff. Mm-hmm. I will say that some of the things that really reflect who I am are, are the stories about, I think I did one about water usage or electrical usage. I would do these experiments to see what kind of footprint I was leaving on the world and if I was being a responsible citizen. Um, definitely interested not just in water shor- shortages, but dirt shortages. I don't know if people think about the uh. way that we treat the actual earth is going to have an impact. And obviously, I'm from Oklahoma. And we experienced the Dust Bowl along with several other states. Uh-huh. And we know certain things about how we should treat the actual earth and what it might do if we don't treat it better. Right. And it is kind of frustrating. It's like being the, you know, Cassandra from, you know, the myths where you're, where you know this truth that people don't seem to be listening. And so um, writing those blog posts was a way for me to, to express those that anxiety, but leave it on the page and not have to wear it so much. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know a lot of people, even my own stepkids communicate a lot better 
on paper uh, through text, let's just call it, uh, and it's by definition text, then in in person, in person to person communication. Doesn't mean that they they can't tell you how they feel, just like it doesn't mean you couldn't say how you feel. You're, you're rocking this interview as we speak. But there is something therapeutic sometimes and and more comforting about, about writing it down. And I fully respect and understand that. I'm probably the opposite, um, but uh, I could I could definitely see myself having a preference for putting some things down versus speaking through it. What I did notice on Rebel Nation is that we have a four-year gap, Rebecca, between Lost Soul Be At Peace and The Last Quintista. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, we work picked up, pandemic happened. For a lot of people, that was a chance to kind of bear down and do some writing. For you, maybe some other things popped off. Um, were you just kind of re- recalibrating um, or finding new books or um, getting back into it? Uh, it didn't, I didn't see that kind of a gap in that way throughout the rest of Rebel Nation. So I just wanted to, to kind of bring that to the forefront really quickly to see if if the listeners who are now going to jump on Rebel Nation and show you a lot of love can expect um, certain updates at certain times of what the case was. I, if people were interested, I would definitely create that content. Um, the gap is largely a result of certain issues that happened. Life got sure. complicated. Um, sure. I took care of my father who was in hospice at the same time I was going through a divorce. So big life things. Happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then during the pandemic, I wasn't a person who worked less. Um, we had a whole team of student workers and interns who needed um to shift gears in a lot of ways, but they still needed income. They still needed all of this stuff. Right. So, so as the, you know, big boss, uh, as one of my, one of my former coworkers called me, it, I felt it was my obligation to make sure that they felt seen, connected, cared for, that they still got a regular paycheck. Um, and so I put a lot of, of effort into, into that area, but right. certainly if people enjoyed that kind of you know, navel gazing. I would do it again. <laughs> For sure. Uh, big boss friend. I, I came across some info where someone even called you their hero, Rebecca. Oh. So uh, you've definitely made an imprint. Uh, one more question uh, before we, before we get out of here. I um, banned books week. Is that this week? Yeah. It's Next coming week. up in a couple of days. Yeah. In a couple of days, yeah. let's talk. Let's close out by talking a little bit about this. What is it, and why is it important for us, the people, to to know what it is? Not long ago, somebody told me like uh, ban books is not a big deal because the U.S. doesn't actually ban books, and I thought it was a really simplistic view because maybe we don't have formal bans the way they would have had, you know, in Hitler's sure. Germany. But we definitely have all kinds of censorship and there are direct Mm. ways that we censorship. And then there's this whole category called stealth censorship. Mm. And I think what the ALA will tell you, the American Libraries Association will tell you, is that one of the trends that they're noticing in book challenges is that there are more coming from organizations. So usually your largest challenger is going to be a parent. And then the Mm -hmm. next largest category is going to be somebody from the community and organizations don't do that much, but not only are organizations challenging more books, but they're also holding events to encourage uh, individuals to challenge books. And so that Mm -hmm. is a trend that the American Library Association has, has seen. And uh, there's a situation going on in my hometown that I encourage people to look at 
um, where uh, um, I'm not sure how deep you want to go into this, but in May of, of, of 2021, Oklahoma, under the leadership of Governor Stitt, Stitt, I think is his name, um, they instituted House Bill 1775, which borrowed a lot from a Trump um, dictate around whether or not contractors can do all kinds of DEI training with their people. And they just sort of lifted a lot of that language. Mm. And my understanding is that teachers have to um, have two articles attesting to the academic merit of one book, one particular book before they can offer it in their shelves. And so this teacher at my alma mater, Norman High School, a butcher blocked off her classroom set of books. Now these would be not books that are part of the curriculum because there's a whole, like that goes through a whole approval process. These would be just the books the kids read for fun. And instead she put up a QR code um, to, I wanna say the Brooklyn Public Library. And and it said something cheeky, cheeky, like definitely don't scan this. Well, so a mom scanned it. She went to the Brooklyn Public Library website she searched and searched, and she found a genderqueer memoir that she claims it's pornography and mm-hmm. protested. The teacher uh, was like, you know, I'm not feeling this. I quit. But now the state is looking at pulling the teacher's uh, teaching license. Wow. And so, so this is an example of how you can have. That's right. Like, was that book banned? No. But mm-hmm. we're definitely inhibiting a student's ability to learn, which is part of the First Amendment. They have the mm-hmm. right to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, it's inhibiting that teacher's ability to teach and share that information. And it's impeding um, all kinds, all, everything we've talked about in this conversation so far yes. about learning about the world. Yeah. Um, so there, so, so there are formal challenges to uh, our ability, our freedom to read them, like I said. Freedom but there are also there are also informal challenges by people every day. And we saw that at Bookman's and we see it in the library where somebody will take a book from one section that they object to and move it to another section. So you can't find it when you look for right. it unless you do an inventory. Same with right. libraries, moving it or they'll check a book out from a library and then never return it. Um, or and that will happen so many times that the library decides to keep it you know, in a secure space. And then that requires a patron to come and physically ask for a book, which yes. puts another barrier between them and that information. System, so, system stuff, systemic yeah. stuff, if you will. Yeah. So maybe we're not like, you know, people who said, well, that's ridiculous. This is America. You can't ban books. Okay. But we're really severely limiting access. And it's important right. to know who we're limiting access for. Like, Correct. When you talk about book bans or book challenges or censorship, you're censoring um, women. Maybe they don't need to be educated. The incarcerated, mm-hmm. um, certainly enslaved people were not encouraged to read. So you're talking about it's workforces. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, you're talking about workforces. It's a it's it's a way to control people. Yeah. I know I threw a lot at you, but like no, boy, yeah, you, you hit me with that one. Well, it's important, you know, and this is information that, well, so this is the purpose of the chopping block, as my listeners know. There are so many people I come across in my day-to-day who say, oh, DEI, that has no place here. Uh, And so I'm not interested in even hearing what you have to say. And the purpose of the chopping block really is to take people from different disciplines and really articulate the intersectionality. Well, DEI doesn't have a place in books. Well, wait till you hear Rebecca's chopping block. 
I, you know, it doesn't have a place in magic. Wait till you hear Kayla Drescher from season two, the magician talk mm-hmm. about it. Um, right. That was and, and, a good one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that one right across the board. So, uh, so I'm glad you are, you're presenting it, not just informatively, but with fervor, because we need to know why this information is important. And most importantly, to counter this notion that we don't ban books in the U.S. Yeah, but uh, just like you say, we didn't ban voting. Uh, we still had to have not just the Fifteenth Amendment, but also all of these other uh, the Civil Rights Act. You know, uh, one was up 1865, and then we had another one and, and voting rights in 1960s. I mean, so uh, you say it's not banned, but if it wasn't banned and was actually truly available to the public and free, we wouldn't have all these statutes in place giving you the right to do so, right? Giving you access. So, no, I thank you for sharing that. And so does the rest of the listeners, I imagine. Dangerous knowledge. (laughs) That's right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I will also say that it's not strictly limited to um, conservatives. You see movements to censor Mm -hmm. something like Tom Sawyer to rewrite it. I've I've seen that. So or the Bible. Oh, my gosh. If you really got into the content in that Bible, you know. Well, yeah, no, yeah, uh, I feel like it's funny because I feel like some things and some people are grandfathered in the Bible being the top of that list. And right behind that, in my opinion, is Al Pacino and Scarface. Mm-hmm. No one brings him up. <laughs> that man is grandfathered in in the name of cultural appropriation. And we move right on past it. And yep. and what, you know, uh, let the conversations happen. But it's interesting to see who is uh, up, for, up for grabs and who isn't. So, yeah. Rebecca, this has been fantastic. What Thank a way to so kick much. off season four. Um, where can people find you? Uh, social media handles, websites, uh, anything like that. We talked about Rebel Nation. So um, where can people get in touch with you if they want to if they want to follow you? So I was an early adopter of social media. So I was also an early adopter of going private on social media. Um, I would recommend if somebody would like to follow me on Twitter, Rebel, R-E-B-L. On Twitter, it's private. You would have to request. Okay. <laughs> um, but if you're looking for great talk around books, um, Worlds of Words on Twitter or Wow Reads on Instagram, I would also want to shout out, I've already done it twice. We need diverse books. I would uh, follow them for really good book lists, the American Library Association, the School Library Journal. If anybody is looking for good book lists, don't look at maybe the New York Times bestsellers or Amazon bestsellers. Go to teachers or librarians because they know what the good Mm. books are and they know how they connect with young people. That makes total sense, actually. Alrighty. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much again for taking the time out of your day to join us on the chopping block. Dr. Sherrod Robbins, Rebecca Ballinger, you're on the chopping block at visceralchange.org.